3: Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. Today, we learn what it means to create the future. I've dedicated a series of shows exploring the qualities, tools, tactics, and mindset leaders from all sectors may need to navigate unsettling times and transform order out of chaos. The authors and thinkers presented in this series offer insights and advice applicable to all sectors, but most importantly, the public sector. What are the seven traps of path dependency? How do old ways of doing things keep us from finding new opportunities? And how can we use disruption as an opportunity to innovate? I'll explore these questions and so much more with Jeremy Gucci, author of Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. Jeremy, welcome to the show. It's great to have you.
1: All right, well, thank you very much.
3: Jeremy, the average lifespan of a large company has fallen from 75 years in the 50s to 15 years today. You know, if I look at the list of the Fortune 500 companies from the year 2000, uh, more than 52% are now gone or displaced. Why is the rate of disruption accelerating and how can society, you know, deal with the negative effects of such acceleration?
1: Well, the pace of change in terms of human progress, technology, the uh, barriers of entering new market have all sort of combined at the same time to enter a world where uh, you can disrupt another market or you can be disrupted. And we kind of get that when we see, let's say, the Ubers or Airbnbs of the world. But if you rewind a little bit, if you imagine life in the 80s or 90s or what it would have been like for our parents growing up, People used to use the word blue chip, and imagine working at a blue chip company, which meant stability. And in the 60s, 70s, 80s, life was more predictable. You knew what the world looked like this year, five years from now, and 10 years from now. You knew who the top five media companies would be, the top five in one industry or another. But now, of course, that's changed, and our world is globalized. The internet's connected us. Information has become more accessible, and you put it all together, and companies aren't hanging on. So yeah, the lifespan of a Fortune 500 has dramatically fallen. And that's interesting because on one hand, it presents a bit of a threat. But on the other hand, it also presents opportunity. And the simple notion and the simple takeaway is that the rules of the game have changed. And now it's more important to better understand the rules of chaos and rapid change. And uh, that's something I study, but I know it's not something that's really studied in schools. So I hope with Create the Future that these lessons about chaos can be very insightful for people as they think about how to navigate the roads ahead.
3: That's great. So, you know, um, our reading habits have changed entirely in the past decade. And you, you point that out in your book And and driven by media clutter and shrinking attention spans, uh, our world has become sort of headlined-obsessed and clickbait. How does your book respond to this change? And are there multiple ways to learn uh, the content in your book?
1: Yeah, when I created uh, Create the Future, it actually stems from a book I wrote in 2008 called Exploiting Chaos. And uh, I'd written Exploiting Chaos right before the world became chaotic. And that was my big career break. I was in the right place at the right time. And I'd made this book that was half imagery with the bold headings and the takeaways and the tactics uh, that were all about chaos. And uh, I've you written know, another book in the meantime, um, five years ago. But what I really was thinking about after 12 years of working in chaos is I wanted to bring that first book back. And it was my favorite in one sense because it was so visual and full of all the charts and graphs and statistics and frameworks. And I really wanted to bring that back. And when I think about how we approach knowledge these days, I think that most business books usually deep dive one topic. And if it was innovation or disruption, you'd read a whole book convincing you that now is the time for disruption or innovation. But I think we're past that. I think we already get it. And we're looking for the tools and tactics. How do you do it? Give me examples. And so I wanted to make a book that was just full of hundreds of different tactics and examples, still with compelling, fun stories, but really focused at the end of each story on, hey, here's the takeaway. Here's the five things you can do. Here's two different workshops people do in this scenario. Uh, And that way a person can read it, pick it up, put it down, but actually have a manual for figuring out how to get through tough times or get inspired when you need to uh, reinvent and figure out what's next.
3: So Jeremy, would you tell us more about yourself? and, And in particular, I'm interested in the anecdote you share in your book. Uh, about your dad. Um, how did your father's relentless pursuit and search for ideas turn into yours?
1: Well, you know, I, I was always a, an entrepreneur at heart as a kid, and it stems from my dad. And when I wrote my last book, Better and Faster, was in 2015, I handed it into my publisher. And, you know, you work on a book for a couple of years, and then you get your feedback all in one lump. And uh, I was kind of, you know, eager, what would my publisher say? And then he goes, uh, I really like page 86. Wait, what does that mean? You only, what you, did you only like page 86? And he goes, no, I had to read until 86 to hear the story of your dad, which you'd written in a page. And I realized, Oh my God, this explains everything about Jeremy, everything about the business he created. Uh, you know, and I just don't know why that wasn't in the beginning. And so I flew back and I interviewed my dad and, uh, and ask him all the questions I hadn't asked when I was a kid. He was a, has a wild entrepreneurial story. Seven days after my interview, he had a heart attack and he died. And uh, that's devastating, obviously. But, you know, now it's five years ago. And when I look back and I think about that, I think, um, you know, uh, I've, I've, I'm sort of lucky. Because if you knew when your father was going to pass away and you, you knew which was the last weekend you'd have with him, what would you want to do? Probably interview him. That's what I gotta do. So now I look back, I feel pretty, pretty fortunate about it. But yeah, do you want to hear a story or two from my dad? I mean, the easiest one that kind of explains what what sort of led to me was he was a little a little guy in a, a poor immigrant family and they didn't have much. They lived in a one-bedroom shoebox of a house that they he shared with his brothers and his mom and his dad. And they didn't have much, but they always ate well. Because my grandma, his mom, was a professional cook. And one day she's taken grocery store. And there it is, the Kraft Philadelphia cream cheese. It looks so good. Gets here. She's over there. Cream cheese is here. She's over there. And finally, when she's not looking, he unravels it, smushes it in his face. And he's like eight years old. And she looks over and she's mortified. This is the grocery store. She's a professional cook. She's a new immigrant in the village, like in the city. So she marches over, grabs him by the neck, probably doesn't even know what she's going to say, but she brings him to the storekeeper and then just goes, I caught this kid stealing. (laughs) Isn't that your kid? (laughs) But they sentenced him to a a month of sweeping the floors after school. And the little guy was only eight, but he couldn't help but realize that at the end of each each week, it was really weird that the grocery store would throw away scrap food. Food that was not really scrap food, but maybe it was uh, not good looking enough to have on the shelf, but good enough to eat, especially you know, his perspective being a poor kid, poor neighborhood. So he was only eight, but he struck up his first deal and he agreed to sweep the Florence forever in exchange for the leftover food. And uh, he would then cart that around in his neighborhood, selling it at deep discounts to the delight of his poor neighbors. And pretty soon he was the first kid on the block with a leather jacket and a BB gun. <laughs> but um, it also really sparked something in him. And then he had this career which is a much longer story, I won't get into it, but he had a career of always looking for the overlooked opportunities and this idea that there's opportunity in people, places, things that others discard or, or overlook. And uh, in, in my case, hearing his story meant I wanted to be an entrepreneur so bad, But how do you figure out what you should do? And I had this upbringing where to encourage my entrepreneurial thinking What he would do, which is a neat lesson for parents everywhere, is he would get every magazine and we would flip them open to the sections with new inventions. And the magazines could be about cars, trucks, fashion, tech. It didn't matter. We would flip the sections to the sections with new inventions. And he'd say, what do you think about that idea? What about that idea? Can we make it? What parts do we need to buy? How much will this cost? What would the reader of this magazine think? And I then had this upbringing where I looked at thousands of ideas. And I made hundreds of little prototypes. And I really wanted to be an entrepreneur. But I think the problem with that approach is it also overwhelmed me because then, I don't know, how do you pick? And so I I ended up really wanting to be an entrepreneur, but how do you pick? And so in university, I tried doing entrepreneurial things, but how do you pick? And I picked the job that opened up my options and eventually became an innovation guy just because I wanted to find my own business. Fast forward a decade, and I was still looking for that business, couldn't figure out what it was. I was running innovation for a bank. I grew them a billion dollar business, which sounds good, but not to the 10 year old kid in me that really wanted a business idea. Um, so, back in 2005, I coded up a website called Trend Hunter, and it was before YouTube, before Facebook. So I had to teach myself to code, but I kind of made a digital version of that magazine, a place where people from around the world could share business ideas. And and truthfully, I thought maybe a trend hunter in Europe or a trend hunter in South America might submit a little idea that would inspire me that I I could bring to America or Canada. But what I didn't expect is there'd be so many people, you know, lost searching for ideas, sharing ideas with each other around the world And so our traffic went from thousands to millions to billions of views. And and now, you know, fast forward today, and my little accidental search for an idea has turned into the largest trend platform. Yeah, we inspire millions and millions of people who are looking for their idea. We learn a lot from it. And we've had a chance to work with about 700 brands now in their quest to figure out ideas. So that's that's a longer story, but it's what led to all the insights in the book. And and really just this idea that maybe you're looking for your idea too, but it's so overwhelming. So how do you filter through the noise and realize there might be a better path for you? And so what I really wanted to share and create the future would be the tactics for finding that better path that that we've learned from
3: having so much experience now. So Jeremy, I found it very interesting some of the anecdotes you share and and, and really how the past really is defining even today's space exploration. And in particular... The connection between roman war chariots and our pursuit of outer space exploration you know why are we more dependent on our past decisions than some would like to admit
1: yeah well okay so um the width of the solid rocket boosters for nasa is the width of two horses butts the solid rocket boosters are the width of two horses butts it doesn't make sense But to figure it out, you'd have to go back to the Roman war chariot days. You'd realize the war chariots tore up the highways in Europe, creating ruts. If you pulled your wagon into those ruts, you'd break a wheel. So pretty soon, all the wagon wheels were the width of the two-horse Roman war chariot. Wagon wheels led to carts pulled by horses in mines, which led to European train tracks, which led to American train tracks, which led to NASA deciding that when they needed to ship the solid rocket boosters on a train from Utah to Florida, that they needed to have them be the width of, effectively, two horse butts. It's really weird, but it's true. So yes, we dependent on past decisions. And everyone wants innovation to happen, but realistically, we tend to repeat past decisions. And so the reasons become complex and then create the future. I go through seven of the different factors of path dependency. And path dependency is actually a concept from... Uh, social psychology in like the 50s and 60s but I kind of apply it to innovation in these periods of change to walk you through how your neuropsychology the traps of your success the ease of not making a change happen all these things start to add up and they compound on us to just repeat whatever whatever decision we made in the past and you know it's interesting in a covid 19 and post covid 19 world because this sort of change and crisis is, scary, obviously, but it also creates an urgency and it kind of breaks us from some of that path dependency and it kind of opens up the chance for you to chart your territory and find some new paths. So that's what I study. And I I think it's really interesting to just imagine and internalize that there's more paths in life there out there for you and we just get too caught in our ways of repeating the decisions that keep us on the path we're on
3: so jeremy what is an innovation accelerator and more interestingly how can one find an overlooked opportunity
1: Well, there there are so many great ideas all around you. And the issue would be that it's easy to dismiss the ideas that are awkward or different. In fact, you know, even something like Apple came out with their iPod. And I I collected all the quotes that came from like Steve Ballmer, the billionaire from Microsoft, uh, the billionaire founder of Palm, billionaire founders of BlackBerry, the CTO of Motorola, the CTO of Nokia. And it's just remarkable to see that even though that device looked interesting to us at the time, to see the market leaders and the way they dismiss a new idea is very fascinating to me. And so I've done the same analysis, even interviewing the people who, you know, invented the digital camera from Kodak, all this stuff. And what you'll find is if you actually start interviewing and diving really deep in all these case studies is that for the market leader, new ideas seem awkward. And it's Mm -hmm. not that the people at Nokia or blackberry or palm it's not like the, the you know they were aloof and that they didn't understand the market it's that they've already tried similar things. They knew the constraints. When they saw the iPhone, they thought, oh, we, at Palm, we already have a way for you to map all of your you know, calendar. Oh, this doesn't have that. And in the BlackBerry, they thought, oh, they don't have a contract that would let people transmit so much data. And there's just an easy way to dismiss new ideas. They look awkward. We tried something like it. So we dismiss it. Meanwhile, when you're not the market leader and you look at a market from the outside, wow, look how cool the iPhone works. This is going to change the world. So part of accelerating innovation within your own world is to assume potential of these awkward little ideas, to recognize the blinding power of your own expertise and how in your industry you will Mm -hmm. underestimate new technologies and kind of overestimate your own ability to, to react.
3: What are the seven obstacles to innovation? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
0: To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org.
3: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Jeremy Gucci, author of Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. Jeremy, in your book, you identify seven traps to innovation or path dependency. Could you tell us more about them? How can we either avoid or escape these traps?
1: Sure. Well, I mean, we kicked it off a little bit there by talking about the, the subtlety of disruptive ideas, which is the first trap. When I think about that particular trap, it really is about finding a way to open up your mind, assume the potential of rival ideas, uh, challenge your own thinking by asking outsiders for opinions, uh, trying to look at your market from different perspectives. So, For example, look at your market, but then think, hmm, How would Facebook approach this market? How would Google approach this market? How would Patagonia? And you know what? It's not that they're going to enter your market. It's that the idea of thinking about things from different perspectives can actually uh, help you to realize the potential in your own market and see where you're strong and where you're weak. So the next trap uh, would be neurological shortcuts. And this is kind of interesting, but it's that our brain is actually – hardwired to repeat past decisions. And if you looked at your neural structure, we actually have little pathways, a whole brain of myelin, which is, sorry, about 40% of your brain is made up of myelin, which is a white fatty tissue, which forms little highway connections that allow you to repeat things that you've practiced. So for example, the first time that Serena Williams picked up a tennis racket, she didn't know what to do with it. She figured out But 10,000 hours in, she starts getting more comfortable, more familiar. And the same thing happens with you, with your career, your profession. And I like to illustrate it in in kind of two ways. So the first way would be, and this is weird, I'm not going to do a million of these, but cross your arms very quickly. And if you cross your arms very quickly, you'll see it just happens. Cool. Now, uncross them. And now just try this once with me. Cross your arms the other way, the other way, very quickly. And you'll see it's kind of awkward. You fumble around. And it's not that you can't do it. It's pretty easy. But you have a myelin pathway to just cross your arms. But when I say to do something even slightly different than what you've practiced a thousand times, you have to actually think through all of the steps. And what happens actually is that uh, as you dial that up to your career, that myelin pathway trap, it makes us better, faster, and smoother and consistent, but it but it also can block us from even seeing the good ideas that are within our grasp. So the exercise I like to do that's uh, fun to dial it up, one from crossing your arms, would be that when I'm running a, a workshop, and my job is kind of, I'm a professional speaker or workshop guy, and, and one of the things I've done with more than 100 groups would be just asking, what can you do with a paperclip? And this is uh, it's a test from the 60s as well. All these classic examples from the 60s and 70s and 50s. What can you do with a paper clip? And if I ask that in any given group, I know what they'll say. They'll go through a list and they'll say, "Ah, oh, you can clip paper together. You can use it as a weapon. You can pick a lock with it. You could make a necklace. You could make a piece of art out of it. Some people will say a toothpick or a Christmas ornament. And, and what will happen is every group of adults gets to about 10 or 15 ideas. But what shocks them is the examples I just gave are the exact same ones in every single group. And so I put that up on a slide and it's very li- unlikely that anyone in the room will say something different than the 10 or 15 that I, I could have just given you. And when you see that, it's like, really? And try it. repeat it with your friends, it's, you'll see. But here's the takeaway that's really interesting. The average kindergarten kid can get to 200 ideas. And I I put up a little video on my niece. I get her to do it. And it's amazing. It blows you away. And the reason why is because they're unbound by all the things that they've seen done before. So when you or I come up with ideas for a paperclip, yeah, we say things like a necklace and a clipping paper and picking lock because they're all things we've tried or, or seen done before. And Uh, That's the example of how myelin in your brain starts to limit your pathway and you don't even see those extra options that a kindergarten would see to a paperclip exercise. And that's just a paperclip exercise. I get it. See the difference between, you know, we try the hand folding and then paperclip, dial that up one more time to your career and is that we don't even see the alternate Um, pathways in our job and our daily routines and our best practices because we're just kind of pre-wired to move very, very quickly. So those are your neurological shortcuts and you can practice looking at your problem from different techniques. You can approach your problem from different perspectives. Again, you can ask outsiders for different opinions. You can find ways to acknowledge better the ideas of the new people on the team. But that's an example of your neurological shortcuts. And and there are ways to sort of train your brain out of it. But uh, that would be our trap number two. The, uh, The trap number three is the ease of inaction. And it's easy just to do nothing at all. The example I give that's kind of fun would be that you type on your keyboard the layout of your keyboard is a QWERTY keyboard. You can look at it, Q-W-E-R-T-Y. That's how it's laid out. Got it. And it's 100 years old, that design. It's, it's actually from the era of typewriters and trying not to have all the keys mashed together. There is a different layout for your keyboard uh, and you can select it on your phone. And it's called a Dvorak keyboard and all the letters are laid out in a different spot. They're all different, but they're optimized for digital typing. And if you switch to a keyboard on your phone, after about six months of fumbling around, you'll start to recognize where the keys are and you'll be about 20% faster by making fewer mistakes. Cool. So here's my question. Do you want to switch your keyboard? <laughs> like, no way, right? No way. I am committed to this, this hundred-year-old design. I got it. Now, What's interesting about that is I just gave you a way to be 20% faster. It's something you probably will do for the rest of your life. But you and I, we don't want to do it. And we all exhibit some level of resistance to change. And the ease of an action trap is that it's easy for us just to not do it. And so what are you going to do to take the initiative? How are you going to push yourself to break past that ease of, of doing nothing at all? Uh, That brings us to trap number four, which is optionality. Optionality is a concept from the wonderful world of finance, actually, and it's about creating options. And if you look at your career, it's funny because you could probably figure out how you got to where you are in a smaller number of critical decisions than you might have thought when you were younger you know, you pick a course in school, it lines up to a major, you take another course to make sure you get that major. Then you interview for three or four jobs, you pick the one that paid $2,000 more, but it's only temporary. And you'll get some different job after. But then you're in the job for a couple years, you start making more money, you have a life event, maybe you get married. So you stick with it. Now you start getting really good at that job. So you stick with it even more. And now that's what you do. And that's, A career, but with a career or a job or a government role, what happens is that we make fewer big decisions than we think. So the question would be uh, how do you make choices that open up more options in the future? Because it might be tough for me to switch industries, but there are things I could do in the career example. I could go back to school, I could go to conferences in my industry, I could try and network with people in different industries. I could try to expand out my options. And similarly, in a corporate or government setting, the idea is to make decisions not just based on what's profitable versus not, but to think about what are the choices that are open up more options in future. And that is uh, the wonderful trap of optionality and how to get through it. That brings me to the fifth trap, which is the trap of success. And this one's my favorite. This is one we probably studied the most at, at my company, Trend Hunter. Uh, a million years ago, we were all hunters in an eat or be eaten world, nomadic. And you and I still have our hunter instincts. We can find something new and we can adapt. We can do it. But 10,000 years ago, we actually... Became farmers. We planted the first seeds, and when we did, we could plan for the winter. And what happened is that after 10,000 years of the population flourishing and farming really working, what happened is that we became pre wired to farm, pre wired to repeat and optimize whatever led to last year's harvest. So, in government and corporations, we like to put in rules, policies, procedures, best practices. And all of these things are wonderful for preserving the status quo, but you know, kicking back to the beginning of our conversation, in an era of rapid change, those farming tendencies hold us back. So the question would be, how do you break free? And actually, if you really want to dive into that, either in Create the Future or at trendhunter.com, we've got an innovation assessment and it's free, but, but you can figure out what are the traps specifically that hold you back. Uh, versus the hunter instincts you're best at. And in aggregate, the three top hunter instincts would be to find ways to be curious, to be insatiable, and to be more willing to destroy how things have been in the past, as difficult as that might, might actually sound. So uh, that brings us to the trap of linear thinking. We kind of kicked our conversation off today with that. But linear thinking is really just this reality that our human brains uh, are pretty good at predicting what next year is going to be like. But we're kind of terrible about three to five years out. Three to five years out is where, with our current world's pace of change, it just becomes really difficult. And there's a lot of tactics that you can do to be better at three to five years out and specific ways you can be better at predicting. But the simple takeaway would be that's where we tend to have the most difficulties as humans relative to the current progress uh, in our world. Um, And my last uh, trap is about the difference between discomfort and breakthrough. And I won't go as deep with that, but whether it's switching your keyboard to a keyboard or crossing your arms the other way, trying something new is difficult. It's simply easier to say no. So recognizing that you have so much potential within your grasp, recognizing that our world is evolving at a much wilder pace, uh, now's the time to start taking those steps to brush up on your skills of adapting, your skills of chaos, and really learning some of those tactics and and rules about uh, chaos and adapting so you can thrive in what you know for certain will be the more chaotic times ahead.
3: Jeremy, how can we recognize our blind spots and, and what is expansive thinking?
1: Well, yeah, I think that what's interesting is to know that all of those traps we talk about force you, especially within your own career, to funnel and narrow your thinking to what you've done before. So the art of uh, the science of getting outside of the the linear traps and, and, and where you're at really require you to look at your problem from different perspectives. And it doesn't have to be a A correct or incorrect answer to that. Um, In the book, I go through six different patterns of opportunity, which can be useful. But you can also use the example we talked about, about thinking about how would different companies approach your problem? How would would, uh, Facebook approach your market? How would Patagonia? How would Google? And uh, ultimately, what you're trying to do is run through more and more routines, more and more examples or case studies of how other people might look at the same problem. If you want, bring those other people in and try and broaden your scope of who's trying to solve the problem. Because fundamentally, what you're trying to do is uh, get out of the blind spots you have that are caused by your own success.
3: Yeah, I was wondering, I, I was reading your book, and I was thinking to myself, what factors contribute to our innate resistance to change? And, and how can we overcome these factors?
2: Yeah, when
1: it comes to our, our resistance change, part of what you're trying to do is practice the things that make you uncomfortable. Uh, find ways to acknowledge that uncertainty is expected forever. And if I was to look at the current market that we're in, there, there is a difference between crisis and chaos. Uh, crisis isn't good for anyone. If we think of COVID-19, it's only really good if you're a mask maker or something like that. But in the period... After chaos, chaos is different, and chaos is predictable. So trying to realize how chaos creates opportunity is really important. And I'll give you some fun examples. You know, people get intimidated by, let's say, uh, uh, uncertain economic times. Well, consider this list. This is a list of companies that were founded during a period of global economic recession. And it's uh, uh, Disney, Hewlett-Packard, Microsoft, Apple. Uh, Federal Express, Fortune Magazine, Pinterest, Uber, Airbnb. In fact, uh, Fortune Magazine was actually founded just four months after the 1929 Wall Street crash. It was priced at $1 per issue in 1929, which was the same price at the time as a wool sweater. It made Fortune Magazine more expensive than any magazine publication that it had ever, ever been made. However, despite that, They ended up with half a million subscribers and made $7 million of modern day profit during the Great Depression. That seems impossible. The reason why it happened is because fortune was more simply an answer to a new consumer need. If you rewind and put yourself in the time, sure it was chaotic, sure it was difficult, but people as a new need had lost their job from decisions being made behind corporate boardroom doors. And that had never really happened before. We weren't really in a corporate world back then. Fortune offered a glimpse behind those boardroom doors, and how did we get here? When might we emerge? And so worded differently, Fortune was simply an answer to a new consumer need. So these times of chaos, new consumer needs evolve, and uh, accepting that, understanding that, thinking of examples like that at Fortune Magazine can motivate you to be very focused on your consumer or your constituent, trying to understand how needs are evolving.
3: So, you know, we have disruption, we have change, but sometimes you need to create a certain uh, sense of urgency. So I was wondering, Jeremy, how can we do that? How do we create a certain sense of urgency? And more importantly, how do simulations create urgency and alignment?
1: Yeah, so in this in this COVID world with vaccines, what's uh, actually happened now is there's billions of dollars being invested all around the world. Every pharmaceutical is chasing it, and there's dozens of treatments, dozens of vaccines that are all in different stages of clinical testing. We're also, as governments, taking different risks than we did before, changing the normal timelines, recognizing the extreme uh, payoff, I guess, versus catastrophic downfall of not having an answer sooner. And that's an interesting example of how crisis does create urgency and does put us in these opportunities for faster simulation and and for actually trying to work through things. And consistently throughout time, whenever you have something that is a difficulty, that is an upside, is that you can actually motivate people, align people, and move faster. And, 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 you know, uh, I can talk about what some of the upside will be of a post-COVID world. It's, it's difficult to be in now, but it's food for thought. Uh, you know, If I look at uh, one little interesting note, consider these examples. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo Sistine Chapel, the invention of bookkeeping, the invention of the Gutenberg Press, uh, and go on and on and on. What makes those examples interestingly similar is that they all come from the Renaissance period, and the Renaissance period emerged from the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague uh, was a little bit worse than COVID-19. In the bubonic plague, a third of the world was wiped out, 250 million people. It was unbelievable, the scale. But um, it caused social structures, which were very, uh, very structured and And sort of regal and aristocratic and all all this stuff. It caused those to collapse. It created a middle class. It created an urgency to actually uh, uh, change and and live your life to its fullest. And what happened was one of the greatest periods of all time in science, technology, art, design. And and so um, we're not in that exact same scale, but, you know, in some sense we feel it. We're, We're working from home. We're going through something difficult. We're really... Um, you know, we're really being stretched more than many of us in our lives. And the upside of this, once we break through, is that people will have a new sense of of urgency and excitement. Now, as a person who studies chaos, what I will tell you is we will emerge differently. And uh, I know post 2008, we've done a lot of research. And a couple of the things we noticed in, in 2008 wasn't as intense as this examples of what what changes uh, would be something um, we umbrellaed under the term potentialism. So after you emerge, you relive your life to its full potential. And that can mean you want to take up the hobby and business and craft that you thought about but have always put off. When you finally feel ready to travel, guess what? You go for that more extreme adventure than you were going to because you want to live to the fullest. When you think about the call time you had with your family, guess what? We're going to be keeping our Sunday dinners and the board games we do after dinner, or whatever it might be. So so what's interesting is right now, this experience will cause consumer and constituent needs to change by the minute. And once we emerge, uh, it will be quite different.
3: How can we create the future now? We'll explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour returns.
0: How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT Management Framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download A Practitioner's Framework for Measuring Results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today.
3: Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and my guest today is Jeremy Gucci, author of Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. Jeremy, in your experience, you note one can predict which companies are most at risk of disruption based on their own self-perception of their performance. I was wondering, would you elaborate for the audience your self-perception of performance scale? Give us a sense of what that is. You know, and why is it bad to be an organization in the doing well
1: category? Yeah, well, you know, I've had a chance now to work with 700 different organizations and, uh, you know, had a chance to work with pretty much every major brand and the most admired list. And what I found interesting is that if you're in the very top 1% Number one in your category, maybe one percent of companies would not say they're doing well. If you ask them how they're doing, they'd say they're paranoid and they're number one, but they're paranoid. And this would be someone like Google, where they're testing everywhere and they're trying new things and they're paranoid they're going to lose their edge. Now, the second category is a company that's in crisis mode and they think everything is going to collapse. And the third category is a company that thinks they're generally doing well. That third category is probably ninety percent of companies. Now. What's interesting is which companies are more likely to fail? If we say that half of the Fortune 500 list from 2000 was wiped out, which is how we started today, which, which category do you think they're in? They're not in the paranoid category because those companies keep on reinventing, um, the, but they're actually also not in the one that's in crisis. In the crisis category, companies try all sorts of things. Case study would be Domino's Pizza. I started working with Domino's, I think, in about 2009 or 10. But at the time, their stock price was down 90%. 90%. Wow. People didn't think they were going to make pizza anymore. But they started wanting to test everything. I think at Trend Under, we did 140 projects with them. And it was amazing that they wanted to do everything. And sure enough, they were the first ones to let you order your pizza online. And they had pizza drones. Then they had gigantic pizzas, too big to be delivered. Then they had... Uh, an app, and you press the button on the app, and a pizza comes. It doesn't ask you for any options. It's the optionless delivery mode. And then they made pizza with an emoji. Now, imagine pizza with an emoji. You text an emoji or tweet it to Domino's Pizza, and they send you a pizza. That doesn't make sense. Imagine being in a marketing meeting a decade ago and saying, I think people should be able to have no options and order a pizza to their house with nothing but an emoji." You'd be laughed out of the room. But because it was down 90%, they were paranoid. They had to try it. And so they did. And they just tried everything. And today, Domino's stock price is up 10,000%. They actually have outpaced Apple in their growth over the same time period. And it's happened because they're paranoid. And because they're paranoid, they tried everything. And the same sort of examples could be told about many organizations who have reinvented. So... Now we've talked about the paranoid companies at the top, the paranoid at the bottom where they're worried that they're in crisis. So now we get to the group in the middle that thinks they're doing well. Well, Guess what? That's the type of company that can be disrupted because when you think you're doing well, you close your mind to the different options. You can't imagine something different would happen. So you sit there as Nokia or Palm or Blackberry, just assuming your dominance of the market will continue forever and dismissing all of the rivals. So it's, it's actually quite dangerous to assume that you're doing well. And a better mindset would be to uh, try and create urgency in one way or another. And there's lots of ways to do that by, by kind of, you know, looking at the crazy world out there, but ultimately trying to create a little bit of a light of fire in yourself and your team to, to be pressuring yourselves to reinvent.
3: So you, you talk a lot about traps in your book habits, you know, patterns, past patterns, grooves, but what is the linear thinking trap and how can one predict better by internalizing the pace of change?
1: You know, um, when I started, after my 2008 Exploiting Chaos book, um, I mentioned I became this sort of chaos guy. I started getting invited by a lot of Fortune 500 CEOs to help them reinvent, in particular media CEOs. I worked with about three dozen media CEOs of all sorts of giant brands that you love and know. Uh, Some of them were billionaires, and these were iconic organizations. And I was trying to help them reinvent for digital, which means understanding that digital streaming is coming and and competing against the blogosphere when you're a newspaper. And I found it really difficult, more so than I would have thought, to convince them. I, I remember sitting in a room with a media billionaire, and he's saying, yeah, but I don't think people are going to be streaming my content. There's ways we can get them to pay. And I'm just thinking like, you, this is 2009. You are so late to this. This is already happening. How is this conversation happening? And what I realized is that he was in a filter bubble in that uh, first, everything new seemed sort of like an awkward new idea that was imperfect. And second, People in his organization wouldn't even want to say that maybe they're streaming content. It was so bad and devilish that that, that they would lose track of knowing what was already happening. So the exercise for internalizing the pace of change that I came up with that I had a lot of success with and then spent a lot of time refining was um, just to say, okay, well, if people are bad at predicting three to five years out, are they good at 10 years out? And they actually kind of are. And I could go to those media CEOs and I could say, do you think we'll be streaming in three years? And it'd be 2009. And they'd be like, no. Okay, what about 10 years? Oh, yeah, in 10 years, everyone will be streaming and video games will be bigger than movies and stuff will be choose your own adventure. And and they would come up with this big, long list. And their list of 10 years out was pretty good, but their list of three to five years was really bad and probably unrealistic. So the skill is look at your own industry and figure out what it was like 10 years ago to the date and what's it like now in every aspect? So, when I did this in 2009 with media CEOs, I said, Tell me what it was like to go to the movies in every way 10 years ago and now. Okay, well, 1999, what was it like? Well, to go to a movie, you bought a newspaper, you looked at the listings, you uh, had to go with a critic review from the newspaper, you figured out where the movie theater was. Then you called it and had to use your touch tone phone, beep, boop, beep, boop, to find out when the movies were on. You then have to phone your friend and leave a message on their answering machine to get them to come. You don't phone multiple friends because it's too complicated. You use a paper map to find the theater if it's a new one. You show up to line up in front of a human to buy your movie theater ticket. And oh my gosh, it's sold out. So now you got to do something different. All of that was changed between 2009 and 1999, a 10-year period. And when I got those executives to do that exercise and just stare at how much it changed in 10 years, then they looked at their list of the super future. And guess what? I don't think that stuff's 10 years out anymore. I guess it is three to five years out. So the takeaway that's really interesting, it's a powerful workshop, but you sit down and one, brainstorm your super future. Two, list out everything that happened to your market or your constituents 10 years ago, and then compare that in detail to today. And when you look at that pace of change, that's an example of a tool or technique that we would use to try and help somebody be much more precise about where the world's headed in the next three to five years.
3: So Jeremy, in your book, you mentioned the super future. And this super future is created by you know, standout megatrends. And there are certain factors that will have the greatest impact in shaping the world. Perhaps you can identify those and explain those factors for us.
1: Well, one of the factors would be uh, you know, artificial intelligence. And people see the word AI, and often they almost gloss past it because it sounds too techie. But AI has already been the thing that's been customizing your Google search results, simplifying your Tinder swipes, and, and sort of integrated in, in much of your, you know, your, your life. We only call things AI when they're new like the the increases of technology and how much that's accelerating. That's one factor. The next factor would be hybridization and the simple reality that the lines that separate industries are blurring. You know, Amazon was a bookstore, but then they started to become a web host, and then they decided to buy Whole Foods and become a grocery store. What? Nobody expected that, but it's because they can become a grocery store. And in all sorts of industries, people are entering new markets uh, in ways that just wasn't possible before. And hungry competitors are looking at your market, even though you never thought that that company would enter your market. Similarly, though, you can enter different markets in a way you just couldn't 20 years ago. And uh, so that's that's AI, hybridization. And then the third mega trend, uh, uh, we track Dozens of megatrends are trend under. But the third megatrend that would be my favorite for the super future is one that I call instant entrepreneurship. And instant entrepreneurship is the idea that today, more than ever before, if you wanted to, you could kind of instantly become an entrepreneur. If my little niece, who's nine, decided that she wanted to make a company selling little plastic dinosaur figurines, that's impossible 20 years ago. But today, yeah, she could do it. She could go online to Thingsverse and get a 3D printed model from her imagination by someone out there that would create the model of her dinosaur. She could go to 99 uh, Designs and get designers around the world competing on her logo. She could go to Wix and for free make a beautiful website much more easily than when I coded up Trend Hunter long ago. She could then go to Kickstarter and sell her little dinosaurs before she has a business. Now, that's a 10-year-old kid. And that's one, you know, she lives here. Uh, but she could be in yeah. South America or South Korea and have the same opportunity and be competing against you. So that's the little scale. But as you dial that up with companies, it's, it's similar as well. So you could more easily than before instantly become an entrepreneur or, or an intrapreneur, meaning an entrepreneur within a large organization. And I think those three factors combine instant entrepreneurship, hybridization, and AI to make a world that will continue to accelerate faster and faster than the pace we're used to today. Our
3: ability to use artificial intelligence AI starts to become more extraordinary when we start to combine AI with six other factors. Uh, What are those other factors and how do they create what you call the AI mechanized future?
1: Right. So, AI itself is just the simplicity of saying technology and computing power continues to get faster. But um, I've got several keynotes online that you can find if you search for my name on on YouTube uh, about the super future. And what I find interesting is if you combine the acceleration of AI with robots, human interface, which is things like mind reading, which is actually possible now with devices and how we interact with voice and all the other ways we interact with our devices. With thought control, and the fact you can actually control video games, wheelchairs, prosthetic arms with that capacity of mind reading, bioenhancement, which is ways we're enhancing the human body, 3D printing, and sustainability, those six factors, if you combine them, it leads to a very different accelerated world. And I'll kind of end off on sustainability, because you might wonder why does a guy like me talk about AI in the super future? Why am I mentioning sustainability in my AI mechanized future? Well, because of this acceleration, we've also entered a really weird space. You know, if you think of having a mattress delivered to your home, well, uh, a while ago, some people realized it was weird to go to the mattress store and talk to a salesperson. I don't know. I don't don't want to talk to a salesperson and tell them how I like to sleep. I don't know. So some people came up with an idea for mattress delivery. Who was it? Was it Casper? Mm, No, actually, it sounds like it is, but it was Sadfa and Tuft and Needle and then Lisa and then Casper four or five years later. But we know Casper because now when new ideas happen, so many venture capitalists chase it that Casper started with $300 million of venture capital. Wow. And All of a sudden, a few years later, fast forward to today, and there's 164 mattress delivery companies direct to your door. Wow. So then Casper looks at it and they're like, oh, we need to differentiate. So what did they do? They announced they're opening 350 stores, bringing us right back to where we started originally. And and that kind of makes all that venture capital uh, useless. But if I give you a different example, You know those rideshare bikes that are in every city? You know, you borrow a bike, you drop it off somewhere else. In China, that idea seemed appealing. And so, so many different Chinese billionaires put in a whole bunch of money to make thousands and millions of bikes that now, if you search for rideshare bikes from space, aerial view, you can find what look like lavender fields in China that have 10 to 100 million bikes that will never be ridden, piled in a junk stockpile of unridden bikes, 20 feet high in miles, square miles of space. Look this up. It will blow your mind away. But it's because so many entrepreneurs with so much venture capital could so quickly get into the market that pretty soon there's like, I don't know, I'll call it 100 million rideshare bikes that will never be ridden. Maybe it's 10 million Look at it from space. Either way, it'll break your heart. And what I think is interesting is in our accelerating world, we also then need to be cautious of how so quickly we can abandon our world itself, our Earth, our planet. And I think sustainability will become increasingly important, one, in an accelerating world, and two, in a post-COVID world. I think when Gen Z looks at us, the people they think are ruining the planet and they start inheriting control, they're going to internalize that, you know, COVID taught us, we're just tiny little people on a giant Mother Earth planet that can absolutely take control of us. And it's going to make us internalize how important it is to look out for for our environment. So um, yeah, that's a little bit about some of the concepts I've had in Create the Future, which is sort of my double-sided book. And uh, I hope you like some of them. And, and if you want more, it's a book full of tactics and frameworks to hopefully help you create the future that is right for you. Jeremy,
3: very interesting conversation. And I appreciate all the insights you've provided on creating the future, a disruptive uh, tactics for disruptive thinking. But I was wondering, how is all of what we talked about today applicable to the business of government and to the public sector in general?
1: Yeah, we've had a good chance to work with a a decent percentage of government clients. So I've worked in different aspects of the U.S. government, the Canadian government, the government of Dubai. And what I find is that uh, what's interesting about government is that all the same traps persist, those same traps of path dependency with an added layer of the fact that we need to tote party lines, we need to think of the next election, we need to try and defend our territory. And then what that starts to do is create paths that are even more ingrained, causing the repercussions of those paths to be even more uh, damaging. So the same traps exist, but often on a more magnified scale. So as the world around us moves even faster, it's pretty important to understand how those traps really, really work uh, in order to better make sure that government doesn't get far outpaced by the corporate world and by people. And certainly in, in this stretch of COVID, I think another upside, dare I say it, is that this tragedy and crisis has forced government, almost every sector, to move so much faster to adapt and address the need to quickly reposition. And suddenly people are recognizing how important government is because here government is bailing us out, helping us through, taking care and looking after our loved ones who get sick. And so I think COVID-19 has been an opportunity for government to step up, for government to accelerate, for government to challenge some of the things that hold us back, whether it's the normal pace of an FDA approval for a drug or, you know, or otherwise. And so uh, I hope we can use this opportunity and experience to continue challenging some of the rules and and finding ways to to help government move faster and never change.
3: Well, Jeremy, thanks. Thanks very much. I want to thank you for your time. And I want to thank you for your book, Creating the Future Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. How can people get a copy of your book?
1: Well, create the future. Tactics for disruptive thinking is available on Amazon or uh, you know bookstores everywhere. And if you're looking for me, you can go to trendhunter.com where you can find dozens of my different keynote videos there or on YouTube. You can also find links to the book and all of our information, our free webinars, and, and more resources. But the book itself is a 360-page tactical guidebook. So that's my life work in one place. But otherwise, you can visit me at Trend Hunter if you want to see more of what we're up to on a day-to-day basis. Well, thanks again, Jeremy. All right. Well, thank you very much. And uh, to all of you, good luck in your quest to create the future.
3: This has been the Business of Government Hour. A Conversation with Authors, a special series focusing on leading through uncertain times with Jeremy Gucci, author of Create the Future, Tactics for Disruptive Thinking. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government leadership and its effectiveness. Until then, subscribe, download, and listen to the entire interview at Podcast One, iTunes, or on your favorite podcast app. And as always at businessofgovernment.org. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
2: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
0: How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yanyan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more.